Hi there and welcome again to Evangelion, Interpreting Scripture and Life. And we continue our journey through Galatians. We're in Galatians chapter 3. We looked at the scriptural section of the argument in Galatians 3, 10 through 13 last time. And today I want to just focus on the one verse, Galatians 3, 14. It's an important transitional verse. It's the first of two conclusions involving Abraham in Galatians 3. Uh, the second is the very last line of the chapter, Galatians 3.29. We'll get to that in a few podcasts' time. But today I want us to think about how it is that Galatians 3.14 explains the scriptural section to some degree and forms uh, an apt conclusion to this section of the argument. Now the key to understanding Galatians 3.14 is recognizing that the curse of the law, which we spoke about last time, isn't contrasted with what you might expect, which is the blessing of the law, but rather it's contrasted here in Galatians 3.14 with the blessing of Abraham. And the blessing of Abraham is equated with the promise of the Spirit. Now, if, as we have argued so far, based on Paul's apprehension of Deuteronomy, and the Deuteronomist history, that the curse, which the Deuteronomist explained as exile, is ultimately death, then clearly in Paul's theologizing there is some sense in which this blessing of Abraham should be understood as life. Now as I've already suggested in Romans 4, this idea is made somewhat more explicit. Let me read to you from Romans 4 and uh, explain uh, just briefly once more what the Apostle is arguing there. And as I've said before, I think the scholarship in general on Romans and Galatians has been somewhat slow to pick this up, but I do think uh, the argument here is identical to the argument of Abraham in Galatians. Paul writes uh, in Romans 4, in verse 16, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, A father of many nations I have made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, that is God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which did not exist. In hope against hope, he, that is Abraham, believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that God had promised um, what he would do, that he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions 
and was raised because of our justification. It's a long, um, winding passage. It's tricky in parts. Um, there are some quotations from the Old Testament which have to be uh, carefully integrated. But the argument um, ultimately is fairly straightforward. It's strange, but it is straightforward. Paul suggests that the birth of Isaac is a parallel to the resurrection of Jesus. And he says so because Abraham and Sarah's reproductive machinery was as good as dead because they were so old, and yet life came forth in the form of Isaac's birth. So Isaac wasn't just born, it was almost like he was resurrected. He had come from death into life. And it was because Abraham trusted the promise of God that he would have a son with his wife Sarah, who was Isaac, that Isaac was actually born. Ordinarily, naturally, Abraham and Sarah were far too old to have a child. So against nature, against all embryological probability, they still had a child because Abraham had faith in God. And so he refers to God as the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which did not exist. And the thing which, of course, did not exist was their son, their heir, the one who would be um, the progenitor of their legacy. God called Isaac into existence, even though he did not and indeed could not exist ordinarily. And he did this by giving life to the dead, by giving life to the deadness of Abraham and Sarah. And in the same way, by giving life to the dead body of Christ, by raising Christ from the dead, Christ became the object of our faith. And so in the same way that Abraham's faith in God the life giver brought him into right relationship with God, our faith in the risen Christ mimics the faith of Abraham, and thus we enter into right relation with God. So back to Galatians 3.14. What is it that Paul says here and how does this form an apt conclusion? Well, having talked about Jesus being cursed because he hung on a tree in verse 13, he writes this in verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. As I've suggested, the arguments here and in Romans are like, should be understood as, as the same. Whether the difficulty comes in this particular passage, insofar as nowhere in Genesis is Abraham promised the Spirit. How can the blessing of Abraham be the promise of the Spirit? In Genesis, Abraham is promised a son, a nation, and a land, but there's no mention of Spirit. Well, here, once more, I beckon you to peer behind the curtain a little. Just look very briefly in Galatians chapter 4, in verses 28 and 29. We'll come on to this in, in earnest um, later. But he writes this, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, 
so it is now also. He describes Isaac as being born of the Spirit. In other words, here, just like in Romans 4, the birth of Isaac is intended to be understood as a resurrection miracle. Now, how can I say this? Well, all throughout Jewish literature, the Spirit is known as the agent of life-giving. Now, this, of course, has its origins right back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the spirit of life and man became a living being. This notion of a spirit, a breath of life that comes and gives life even to dust being the very origins of man. These are the, the, this is the the earliest instantiation in, in Jewish cultural thought of the spirit being the origin of life. And it's seen in a number of Jewish texts. Of course, there is a direct parallel in Ezekiel 37 in verses 5, 6, 8 and 9, where the breath or the spirit of God causes the dry bones to come to life. In Ezekiel 37 verse 14 it reads, And I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And so we see there's examples here of how it is the spirit is the agent of life-giving. Well, by way of example, the same idea is used extensively in the Jewish romance based on Genesis 41-45. The novella, this Jewish novella known as Joseph and Asenath, is a story of how this Egyptian woman, the son of a high priest, according to Genesis 41-45, converts to the religion of Yahweh and becomes Joseph's wife. I'll read a few excerpts in a moment. But there's not much said about Asenath in the Old Testament, but we do know in Genesis 41 that she becomes Joseph's wife. She is an Egyptian. She's the son of a, an Egyptian high priest, the daughter of an Egyptian high priest, rather. And she becomes... Joseph's betrothed. The story of Joseph and Asenath, which is a Jewish novel which is not in the Bible, expands on this story and describes Asenath's conversion. She was a, an Egyptian and uh, the you know uh, not a member of God's people, but in order to become so, she had to be reborn, and she's reborn by the power of the Spirit. We read in Joseph and Asenath 8 verse 5, it's not right for a man who worships God, who with his mouth blesses the living God and eats the blessed bread of life and drinks the blessed cup of immortality and is anointed with the blessed unction of incorruption to kiss a strange woman. So you see here, this is the author saying that Joseph, who is a servant of God, who eats of the consecrated bread of God, the so-called bread of life, can't marry or or be associated with this unbeliever. And so we read on in verses 10 and 11, O Lord, the mighty one, who makes alive all things, and called them from darkness into light, and from error into truth, and from death into life, do you, O Lord, yourself make alive and bless this virgin, and renew her by your spirit, and remould her by your secret hand, and quicken her with your life. 
And then a little later, in fact, in Joseph and Asenath, chapter 19, verses 10 through 11, we read, They kissed each other for a long time, and Joseph kissed Asenath and gave her spirit of life. And he kissed her the second time and gave her the spirit of wisdom, and kissed her the third time and gave her the spirit of truth. Now this Jewish novel is all about how Asenath came into the people of God so she could marry Joseph. And the way she, her, her conversion is described is by being brought from death to life. And it's this same motif that Paul is picking up on because the spirit is the agent of life. And in Galatians, the spirit is the one who conveys the risen life of Christ into people. And so you can see the spirit being the agent of life. It's a fairly well-traveled idea in Jewish thought. It helps to explain Paul's conclusion in Galatians 3.14. And what we see here um, is that um, by breaking the curse of death um, with resurrection life, by overcoming crucifixion death with resurrection life, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles might experience new life, and indeed all might then receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, all may become children of Abraham after the template of Isaac, because to be born in the same way that Isaac was born, as we'll see when we expand upon chapter 4, is to be born according to the Spirit, or born according to the promise Birth according to the pattern of Isaac is effectively fictive kinship. In other words, Paul is describing this new family, this new people of God who are tied together with bonds of unity which go beyond blood ties. As Gentile believers, we've all been adopted. Try to imagine prospective parents in an orphanage looking round and locking eyes on the child that they just know intuitively is the one that they want to adopt. Well, all of us were spiritual orphans until the Holy Spirit came in to the orphanage and looked upon us all. The only difference being is that he looked on all of us and knew intuitively that he wanted to adopt all of us. When we consider the family that God is building, we ought to be conscious that we are all equally accepted equally adopted, equally children of God, equally loved, equally the sons of Abraham, equally welcomed into the divine family. For Paul, this is fictive kinship, and somehow it's more real even than physical, even than physical kinship. For Paul, this is the family of Christ himself. This is the royal family, the people of God, the family of heaven. And as we'll see at the end of Galatians 3. It's precisely because we are this family, this newly formed family adopted by the Holy Spirit and made one in Christ that we become the true heirs of Abraham's legacy and therefore the true family of heaven.